Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. And you're live. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of Cosmic Cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's grossly managed, grossly mismanaged, I should say, little world. Our goal here is to let the spirit inhabit the human, to see the world from a higher vantage point. As always... We try to do this with as much grace and empathy as can be mustered on any given days. Some days, better than others, but each day brings with it an opportunity to regroup and have another bash at it. Our rally cry on this show is, Awaken, oh my people. Let us not follow the path of the sheeple and let us not give our God cause to weeple. And that, my darlings... I believe requires our daily attention, our daily focus, because we must admit there is much out there today that gives us the creeples. Heavens, people, just a little bit above me up the road in Seattle, they've declared a blackout zone. They've allowed people to march in on the Capitol and uh, the authorities of that city have told the police to stand down. And, you know, reading between the lines here, because the lines, they're not, you know, (laughs) Boy, I'll tell you, there's a lot of gaps between the lines these days. Reading between those lines, I have a feeling that, um, well, let's just call them the left wing. They're planning to march on the White House and have some sort of revolution so that they can oust President Trump, who is exposing deep state. If you're not seeing this happening, you're not looking very exciting, interesting, scary, creepily times. And this requires our attention. Hello, America. Wakey, wakey. This is karmic crossroads time for us. Let's pay attention. Yes, awaken, awaken, awaken. Hey, what are we doing on this show to help everybody awaken? Besides drinking martinis and having little rants here or there. Well, after my customary introductory pontification, we will have questions, answers and comments. Then we'll go for a bit of tarot a go-go. And this week, it's not Plato Chips, the philosophy corner. It's the cryptic mystic. And we'll squeeze in a little pat of poetry and a short review of my latest real life martini recipe. And we'll try to cram all this into an hour. So good morning, America. How are you? Yeah. Awakening. Oh, yes. But, um, Have we noticed also how mean-spirited most people get today when they're challenged? And that happens when we're at the crossroads where, you know, we have this cognitive dissonance thing where people go, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Am I right? Oh, my gosh, I've been thinking this all my life. But now there's evidence to the contrary. It makes us very unsettled, doesn't it? It ruffles our feathers. And some people know what they're talking about. I have to say most people have no idea what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of that going around right now. And that manifests in self-righteousness and ignorance. And that's not a very palatable combination, is it? Wanting to be right instead of doing the right thing. Sticking to one point of view and not entertaining others. Recently, I had to review the way I use social media, or as I call it, the great unwashed mind of social media, Because I found I spent just as much time deleting rudeness and people ranting off topic and uh, what I call general dickery 
as I did writing my posts. So I've switched to blogging because there's no shutting me up, obviously. So there's a link to my blogs on my website if you're interested. Um, social media is not a suitable medium for deep debate anyway. And I'll continue to post my classes and events on there and post the odd thing once or there. But uh, I'll also put the link to my blogs on there as well. But I won't be interacting in the same way. You know, if you want to discuss a topic, by all means, go ahead, put it up for discussion. But when you do so, be prepared for discussion. Be open to other points of view and be prepared to learn. Be prepared to receive new information. Well, Arnie, gosh, that's obvious, you might say. And yes, it is obvious to me and to you. But it seems a great many people miss the obvious. So if you're new to my show, welcome. I'm happy to have you along. Just to let you know, I'm not the type of shaman that throws incense about and recites well-worn platitudes and hackneyed hallelujahs. I mean, I do like incense. And this is not a forum for political correctness, not this show. Common decency, yes. Courtesy, yes. Open to discussion for the advancement of knowledge and the wisdom to put that knowledge into good use. Yes, yes, yes. All that good stuff, yes. And no topic related to the evolution of mankind is taboo on this show. I happen to believe that political correctness is a mind manipulation tool designed to stop us thinking by making us too nervous to ask important questions in case we offend someone. It has nothing to do with common decency and common courtesy. In fact, I know it's a mind manipulation tool designed to do just that because my work has taken me to some very interesting places over the years. And I have sat in rooms where I have heard engineering of perception discussed. Make no mistake, the establishment set out to create a society of easily offended, bleeding hearts. And thus far, their campaign has been successful. If they have their way, and so far they have their way, important matters won't be able to be discussed in case we offend those with frail minds. Matters of importance have become landmines. Can you see that? Can you see what the engineers of our perception have been up to the last few decades? Now, walking across a field filled with landmines is a very dangerous activity. Today's propagandists, they want to make every conversation a field filled with landmines. Gosh, you say. Hmm, it's not politically correct to say that. So I guess it's not politically correct to think that way. And boom, boom, there you have it. Right there, you have the nub of the matter. Someone else has taken control of your mind. So you avoid discussing important subjects. And the more you do this, the more you allow the erosion of your intellect. And one day, you simply give up thinking for yourself altogether and rely on the daily spin to keep you informed. All your needs are met by big government. Yes, that big government spoon feeding you sugar-coated processed cow poopoo. In time, you grow accustomed to the taste and texture of the sugar-coated processed cow poopoo and forget that other food groups existed. Well, you think, I seem to remember a time when I made my own choices. But the sugar-coated processed cow poo-poo is ready to eat and handed to me on a big poo platter, so I guess I'll stick with it. Everyone else is eating the same poo, so why should I be different? But deep down, your mind, body and soul do not like the cow poo-poo, and they are planning a poo intervention. Yes, you say to yourself, I seem to remember a time when I spoke out against the sugar-coated processed cow poo-poo, but that did not go well for me, did it? No, I wasn't strong enough to stand up for what I believed in. My friends and family ridiculed me for wanting to eat something other than poo. 
I felt ashamed. I felt humiliated and alienated. So I ate the poo. And now, many years later, oh my gosh, I am part of the poo. Yet, even after years and years of living in Poolandia, something within us stirs. Something deep within our being stirs and our true voice asserts itself. You see, my darlings, we were not created to become eaters of state-sanctioned poo. We were created from the waveforms of supreme cosmic intelligence. And that is the only part of us that is real. And when the poo hits the pavement, that very real part of us will awaken and insist that the spirit inhabits the human. If we allow this to happen, and I suggest we do, we will wake up one morning in a higher state of consciousness. We will look at the plate of poo before us and seeing it for what it is, we will be repulsed by it. And thus begins the journey back to wholeness and holiness with all its messy layers of emotional laundry. Oh, but Arnie, oh my gosh, Arnie, you say, is it worth it? Well, of course, it's bloody well worth it. Because once the scales fall from our eyes, once the state's sanctioned illusion has been shattered, we cannot be content to live as bit players and extras in someone else's story. From our new higher vantage point, the world is a very different place. It's full of possibility. The magic, the sense of adventure, it all comes back. The desire to co-create, it returns. The smile on our face is genuine once again, not the pained, confused apology for a smile worn by most. And best of all, best of all, we get to take all the poo we have been fed over the years and fling it back in the faces of all the people who fed us with it. And maybe, just maybe, if they are not too far gone within the illusion, they too will be repulsed by it and have their own awakening. Because that is the end game, that is the point. Not vengeance or violence or I told you so or F you. It's, oh my gosh, I was wrong. I can do better. We are all one. So let us ask ourselves each day, am I invested in being right or in doing the right thing for the right reasons? Are people trying to silence me, to stop me from speaking, thinking, if I believe I have something to say, and I always have something to say, if I believe I have something to say that will serve the betterment of mankind, I refuse to be silenced. Don't make the mistake that many people make, thinking that others know more than you do. With open hearts and open minds, oh my darlings, such treasure we shall find. So, hey, Let's get on with it. Let's get on with questions, answers and comments, which is the reason I started this show in the first place, to provide a safe yet sassy space for we the people to share the contents of our fabulous minds. And if you would like to grant us access to the rich and exciting inner world of your mind, send your email to Arnie at AnnieAvidician.com or by snail mail to Cosmic Arnie. P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA, USA, USA. Okay, and let me know if and how you would like to be identified when I share your missive over the airways. Is if you don't, I'm not going to identify it at all. To be safe, I'm just going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to call you a nonny mouse. All right. Our first question today comes, we had a lot of emails. Um, you know, the times they are changing. People have questions. People have a lot to rant about, apparently, too. So our first question comes from a chap who gave his full name and address, but I am not going to read it for obvious reasons. 
Dear Miss Abedician, I have written to you on many occasions, and not once have you included my comment on your show. Do you only include opinions you agree with, or are all points of view welcome? I would like to talk about the recent riots. Do you think it correct that people should take to the streets and burn and loot to protest an action they consider unjust? Doesn't it defeat the purpose? And doesn't it prove they are just as bad, if not worse, than the people they are riled up against? And why is it we only have riots when members of the black community are injured or murdered? Plenty of white people are injured or murdered by police, yet we do not take to the streets and loot and burn down honest businesses. Um, okay. Let me answer your question as best I can. And first, let me say the reason I have not included your previous questions on my show is due to the venom and outright vitriol you spewed against certain communities. It's not because I disagree with you. I, Ani Abedician, disagree with pretty much everyone on everything all the time. So that's not the reason. No, everyone has a right to be heard. I'm including this content today because it's the first time you have written to me in a clear and concise and courteous manner. So um, let me answer this as best I can. And of course, this is my point of view. When I answer these questions, by the way, I don't represent any community. I don't represent whites. I don't represent Armenians. I don't represent gay people. I don't represent shamans. I don't represent psychics. I don't represent... Oregon lovers of Willamette Valley Pie Factory Strawberry Shortcake. Um, what else? Um, I think that's it. But I don't represent anyone except myself. So please, let's, you know, let's make that clear. Do I think it correct for people to take to the streets and burn and loot to protest an action they consider unjust? I think we need <clears throat> first to recognize the difference between honest, peaceful protesters opportunist looters committing criminal attacks, uh, criminal acts, and paid thugs are also committing criminal acts. And there is plenty of evidence to suggest the rioting, not to be confused with peaceful protesting, was not spontaneous, but well-planned and well-funded. You don't have to look too hard to figure that one out. So does it defeat the purpose to meet violence with more violence? A quickie answer, yes, of course it does. The other part of the question, sir, was why do riots take place when members of the black community are injured or murdered and not when members of the white community are injured or murdered? I don't have numbers in front of me. I'll have to do some research on that. However, whatever I say, however I answer this question, someone's going to have a problem with my response. Um, it's their problem, of course, not my problem. So uh, let me just say that when we look for solutions to problems, such as uh, prejudice against any segment of society, it helps to understand the origin of the problem. Life in America would be very different today, wouldn't it, if emancipated slaves were given the same opportunities as European immigrants? 40 acres and a mule, well, it would have given families landowner status. And there's the big divide, isn't it, right there? What did we say to the world as Americans? Come, all ye poor and downtrodden from across the waters, and get thyself some free or really cheap arable land. Build a better life for thy kin and help us build up this new nation of small farmers and free thinkers. And they did. They came from Europe. They came. They came. Oh, my God. They came. But, oh, not, sorry, not, no, 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 not you folks. No, 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 not you. Not you lot who have labored hard with no reward for the better part of two and a half centuries. No, 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 not you lot. Uh, sorry, uh, we have no idea how you'll become independent or feed yourselves without land or status. Uh, but, oh, sorry, I guess it's emancipation to emaciation for you. So no land, no status, no rights. And the establishment worked hard to keep it that way. 
A government at the mercy of people empowered and united? Perish the thought. Keep those damn minions in their place. So how different would it be if poor whites and poor blacks worked side by side after emancipation? If black participation in trade unions was not limited, it would be a very different world. So how could such a conspicuous exclusion from society's mainframe fail to have a detrimental effect on the black psyche? I mean, segregation, 1877, I think, until the mid-60s. You know, we had the Jim Crow laws, which basically designated African-Americans as second-class citizens. Much effort was put into keeping whites and blacks divided after emancipation. And yes, that's where institutional racism started. And I'm only scratching the surface here. So when seeking solutions to problems, it helps to understand the origin of a thing. But it does not mean we cannot move on from it. Because on an energy level, feeling victimized is a low and dangerous vibration to operate from. But you can't just say, well, it's 2020 and we should do better and it's not PC to be racist. You have to understand the origin of the thing or you won't be able to come up with the solution. And the solution is staring us in the face, but no one wants to hear it. It is the spiritual tenet of what you feed or fuel grows and what you do not slows and away it goes. Now, does that mean the government is now obliged to give every black-skinned American 40 acres of land and a John Deere? Well, of course not. That will probably cause more problems than it solves. You see, as overt as racism is, any type of racism against any ethnic group, it is embedded in the subtlest energies of our belief systems. Society was carefully taught to hate. As uh, Mr. Rogers said, by the time we are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people our relatives hate, we have to be carefully taught. As always, the war is in our minds. As always, the question is, who runs your mind? Well, the answer to that is, of course, the media. The media runs our minds. That's evident. Look around you today. What if they reported man killed by police officer instead of white cop kills black man? When a white person dies at the hands of a police officer, and it happens, do they report white man killed by white cop? And if they did, would it trigger anyone? Or what about Asian American cop kills American Armenian? Everyone has an agenda. And every incident presents an opportunity to exploit that agenda. News channels have paymasters who tell them how to color, no pun intended, events. The news is an establishment tool used to excite and ignite, and we fall for it every time. Shame on us. Shame on us, because we know we have problems, yet time and time again, we fail to take the spiritually mature path to permanently resolving them. Now, am I saying pretend racism doesn't exist and watch it go away? You know, if you don't give attention to a thing, hmm, okay, let's assume I'm not saying that. Because that needs a lot of grace and dignity on both sides. So let's say I'm not saying pretend racism doesn't exist and watch it go away. without violence, damage to another's property, without all the things that are happening now. I'm, I'm not saying what I'm saying. What am I saying, Arnie? I haven't even had much of my martini. What I'm saying, darlings, is this. As carefully as I can, please pay careful attention to your emotional triggers because the establishment has spent billions of dollars collating that information and uses it, uses it to keep us jiggling at the end of a long string like puppets in a sideshow. So you say, apparently today we are all equal under the law. But what does that mean? True equality exists only in source. Of course, only source is real, so that's fine. But my point is, once we created physical realms, we discovered polarity and started to label everything, which is fine, actually. Labels are a convenience, especially on canned food. It tells us what's inside. The labels are not a problem per se. Here's a can of white people. Here's a can of black people. Here's a can of Asian people. 
The problem lies when, based on the experience and testimony of another, you decide not to try the contents of the can for yourself. And then you tell 100 people that you did not want to expose yourself to canned item X because you heard it was nasty. And each one of those 100 people share the same information with 100 more. And before we know it, tens of thousands of people have labeled canned item X as nasty, but only one person ever actually experienced it. It's a bit like movie reviews, isn't it? So let's not make that mistake of thinking others know more than we do or that their opinion is worth more than ours. Complex problems call for simple solutions. I have a 21 day challenge for us all. It's a start. For the next 21 days, when we talk to each other, unless doing so serves a purpose, let us refrain from adding ethnic descriptions. Let us just be Americans. Let us try it and see how it feels. Not to have someone jiggle our triggers for 21 days. Thank you for the question. Let's grab another question from our fishbowl, really, is what it is. And this is from Mateo in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. Hola, Mateo. Mateo says, you know, hang on a minute. I need a sip of my martini after that question. Ooh, that's <clears throat> interesting. Mateo says, dear Oni, do you have any advice on how I can get my family to accept that deep state is real and a threat and not some tin hat theory? They are very conservative and I have to say pretty close minded, but I love them and I do not want them to be surprised when the world blows up. <laughs> uh, we are. <laughs> Excuse me. We are all fluent in English, so any materials you recommend in English will not be a problem. Matteo, I do hope the world is not going to blow up. Um, and if it does blow up, I hope our friends on the other side will give us some warning so we can prepare. So rather than give you a whole list of stuff, this is my personal top recommendation for deep state naysayers. Bill Moyers. No one can accuse Bill Moyers of being a conspiracy theorist. So pull up a YouTube video of Bill Moyers interviewing long-term Republican congressional staffer Mike Lofgren. And I think it was posted as far back as 2005. They discussed together, Mike and Bill, in some detail what deep state ideology is and how it affects our world. Just two average guys in suits talking in gentle and civil tones about the greatest threat mankind has ever faced. Very good video. I think it's about 30 minutes or so. You see, deep state isn't something that, you know, was busted by aliens and UFOs. It deep state was busted by accountants. Congressional staffers and Department of Treasury people who said, hang on a minute, where's all this money going? Why are we giving money from our government to all these people? What's going on here? That's how Deep State was busted. Bill Moyers, go for it. And hey, Matteo, if they buy it, drop me a line and let me know, because that video has served me well. It has shut so many people up. And it's just a pleasure when that happens. So I can sit and talk about Deep State for hours, but uh, mainstream peeps have no interest in a shaman's opinion. I dare them not to pay attention to uh, Bill Moyers, who, if you don't know, is an American journalist and political commentator. And I believe he served as the ninth White House press secretary under the Johnson administration, 65 to 67. And he's done a bunch of work on uh, network TV and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and a word about your conservative parents, Matteo. It seems to me today that more conservative, you know, the people with the more conservative inclinations are the ones who see deep state for what it is. Those with more liberal leanings tend to dismiss deep state as made up fairy tales, uh, which is, of course, exactly what the establishment want us to think. Um, 
And the previous statement that I just made was an observation and not intended to imply bias because I have no partisan affiliations because both parties are broken. Alrighty, so here is another question. I'm going to have another sip of this very strange little martini I've made today. Sometimes experimentation doesn't go well. All right. This question is from Freddie in Detroit, uh, but originally from London, UK. Oh, here we go again. Dear Arnie, <laughs> what does white privilege mean to you? My friends are currently too hot tempered to have a sensible discussion about it. He also writes, you may not remember me, but we have met. Back in London, we met at a party given by mutual friends on the Westbourne Grove. If you do not remember me, it might jog your memory when I tell you the host was a very tall guy who gave you good deals on stuff because your great-grandfather worked for Haile Selassie. Oh my God, Freddie, after all these years, who would have thought it? Ah, I'm having um, a bit of a giggle here because back in the day, and, and this was years ago, and Westbourne Grove in London is rather fashionable these days, but back in the day, the only reason I went to Westbourne Grove was to buy hashish or cannabis. Ah, oh, memories, memories. Um, and I want to assure my listeners that the cannabis was purchased exclusively for ceremonial use. And if you believe that, uh, you will believe anything. Well, Freddie, my darling, you have started a trip down memory lane for me. As I recall, you gave me a lift home that evening in your very shiny, very fancy new car and uh, behaved like a perfect gentleman. So perhaps your love of automobiles is why you moved to Detroit? Well, it's lovely to hear from you um, after all this time. And I suppose we should address your question. What does white privilege mean to me? And before I address this question, Freddie said, what does it mean to me? Freddie is not asking me to represent white people or any other group. This is my input and mine alone. Um, I think I've just blogged about this very recently. So, you know, white privilege is the catchphrase of the week. And I have to honestly say that those words make me cringe because I do believe they invite division by invoking the ghosts of slaves and their masters and the media's cashiers. They love white privilege because it stirs up all manner of shit for people to fling at each other. So um, I'm quite familiar with American history. I came here 30 years ago and out of respect for this country, I spent time each day and still do uh, devoted to the study of American history, culture, civics, system structures, Jim Crow, sampling good American bourbon and all those things. Um, I did this because I want to be a productive member of American society and not some expat Brit drinking tea and living in a bubble. I've always maintained that as a shaman, America has a sacred purpose to prove that achieving unity through diversity is the main theme of physical realms. But there are many people out there for convenience. We call them the establishment who will do anything and everything to stop this from happening. And these are the people who come up with catchphrases such as white privilege. These are the people who jump through hoops after emancipation to convince poor whites, poor whites, that they were superior to freed black slaves. In shaman lingo, we call this Luciferian psychology. Luciferian means refusing to co-create with supreme cosmic intelligence. It means focusing entirely on material gain and controlling every aspect of life lived upon that realm. And it is the driving force energy that created the deep state ideology. So let's not get our knickers in a twist. Let's remember how easily led we are. When we're children, someone gives us a wooden toy shaped a certain way and says, here, kiddo, this is for you. It, it's a wooden horsey poo. And as a human child, we have no conscious frame of reference for this strange object. So we accept it into our lives and call it a wooden horsey poo. Um, but what makes it a wooden horsey poo? The fact that someone told us it was a wooden horsey poo. And I have to ask ourselves something. Are we still children? Do we still believe whatever we are told by the purveyors of media poo? 
IMHO, in my humble opinion, there is a deep psychology attached to the phrase white privilege. It is designed to trigger a multitude of emotions across multiple partisan affiliations. But here's the one that bothers me the most. It, it implies that today, in 2020, the fact that black Americans do not thrive is solely the fault of white Americans. And today in 2020, not only is that untrue, I consider it the grossest of insults to black Americans because it implies they will never thrive without white intervention. After emancipation, black Americans were not given the same advantages as European settlers. It is a fact. We had segregation, 1877 to 64, 1964. It is a fact. History is filled with accounts of people treating each other with unimaginable cruelty. Yet somehow we pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and have another bash at this game called life. Whatever we'll feed, whatever we feed, it will grow. And that, too, is a fact. So nice to hear from you, Freddie. Be well and be swell and don't end up in hell. Um, and if you ever find yourself in Oregon, look me up and we'll go out for a pint. And I think one more question in today's questions, answers and comments, QAC, which I just looked at my notes and spells quack. I didn't think that through well, did I? So this one just came in on the email earlier today from a chap who calls himself the Mighty Ferguson. And the Mighty Ferguson says, Dear Suburban Shaman, we should formulate a plan of action for when they defund and eliminate the police forces. I, for one, will jump for joy when the power-crazed jack-booted minions of the state are fired and forced to find meaningful work. Americans should police their own streets, their own communities. It would force us to get along with our neighbors of every race, color, creed, orientation and affiliation. What say you, O oh wise, outspoken goddess of the burbs? Will you place your Ruger next to my Luger? Will you place your Ruger next to my Luger and join me for a spirited community patrol? Well, mighty Ferguson, I think you might be a touch crazy. But that's not always a bad thing. I actually can feel your warmth coming through this this email and your humor. So it's essential, you know, in today's world. So uh, can I call you MF? Um, MF, defunding and eliminating are not the same thing. I don't think we're going to eliminate the police force anytime soon. Oh, what bloody chaos that would be. Um Having said that, I was concerned, like most Americans were, by the increase in funding given to police departments after the 9-11 New World Order attempted takeover attacks. So, you know, we want our officers to have up to date, efficient equipment, high quality firearms, Kevlar vests, well-maintained vehicles, well-trained canines. And we want all that for their safety and for ours. But good policing, in my humble opinion, is community policing. I'll agree, when I see police in small tanks equipped with sound wave emitting weapons, I don't see police officers. I see Big Brother on parade. And when I see policemen and policewomen decked out in very heavy protective armor, head to toe, looking like Star Wars movie extras, I don't see police officers. I see Darth Vader's stormtroopers, intimidating, daring and, and taunting. We should be having a conversation about demilitarizing the police forces of America. Only then, perhaps, we can start to regain the trust of the communities, um, which over the last 20 years or so, I have witnessed the steady decline of that trust. But that's not entirely the police's fault. Back to that in a minute. As for the power-crazed, jack-booted minions of the state, um, I've worked with a fair number of police officers over the years. Like every other organization made up of humans, the police has its fair share of uh, tiny dick and big baton brigade, you know. But I have to say, the majority of the officers I have met are decent people who want to keep their community safe 
and many of them do not care for the direction law enforcement is taking. The problem lies with who controls the police and what function they want the police to perform. I'll agree that as someone who sees auras, who can see the changes in subtle energies, it is interesting to watch someone's energy change as they equip themselves. The more armor you wear, the higher the level of threat perception, the bigger your sense of separation from those around you, and as that grows, empathy diminishes. We should be teaching each other how to defuse threats, not to arm ourselves to the teeth against them. I think demilitarization is essential, and we'll need a few more conversations until we find the right balance. And like Mighty Ferguson, I would like nothing better than to take turns patrolling my neighborhood, getting to know everyone, building mutual support and all that good stuff. And actually, patrolling isn't the word. We shouldn't have community patrols. We should start by having community strolls. This is a bigger subject than we have time for today. But thank you, MF, for writing in. And as for putting your Luger next to my Ruger, you cheeky little chap, hush now. The police are under attack today on so many fronts. And as we discussed, they're human beings and they're not perfect either. But I really feel that there is an agenda by those who do not want to dethrone Deep State to make the police look as bad as possible and to make them as ineffective as possible to cause riot and revolution in this country for the sole purpose of keeping Deep State in charge. I don't say this lightly, but I think if you look around you, it's really pretty obvious. Everyone should spend a day on patrol with their local police force. And then you learn exactly how much restraint they do show on a daily basis. All right. Shout out for all the good men and women in the thin blue line. I think we'll pause there with the questions and answers and comments. We can always take another one if we have time. I don't think we're going to have time. All right. A little sip of martini. Why don't you guys out there listening to me have a sip of martini too? Come on, let's do it together. Sip of martini. Yummy, yummy in my tummy. And now it's time for Tarot A Go Go. A little shenanigana with the major arcana. If you're joining us for the first time, we are using the Rider Waite deck as it is the most commonly known and used deck. I personally prefer the Robin Wood deck, but we started with Rider Waite, so we will finish with Rider Waite. This week's card is number 19, The Sun, and what a lovely card it is. Let's take a look at it, shall we? What do we see? Well, we see a big bright sun with sunbeams shooting out from it. That's always good, isn't it? The sun provides warmth and illumination. Who doesn't love the sun? I love the sun. After living in Oregon for two and a half decades, I crave the sun. I long for it. On the Rider Waite deck, the sun has a face. It's a pretty neutral expression, but hey, if you're the sun, you have nothing to prove. What else do we see? We see a chubby little baby on a white horse holding a flag on a stick. The flag is always a solid color, and depending on the deck, it can be any shade of orange or red. Orange. Now, that's a bright color, isn't it? Fire. Lots of energy. It's like, oh, onward and forward and yes to everything. And if it's red, well, that's also a color of vitality and energy and action and boldness. Or it could mean the baby holding the flag is a communist. We will never know. What else do we see on this card? The baby is riding a white horse and riding it bareback. What a clever little baby. But it's a decent looking horse. It's not a working animal. Perhaps a horse fit for the lady of the castle. So we can assume it represents some sort of nobility, some sort of status. What else do we see on this card? <clears throat> yes, there's a brick wall and a row of beautiful sunflowers planted right behind it. And as pretty as this card is, the symbolism is very masculine. The sun is masculine. 
sunflowers are a symbol of masculinity. The brick wall certainly reminds me of a few men I have known. And the baby, it has flowers in its hair, but we can't define gender. Uh, all in all, this is an incredibly happy card. So what should we expect when we pick the sun? Well, we should certainly breathe a sigh of relief because no matter our present circumstances, when we pick the sun, things are about to change for the better. So say opportunity is in the offing. When you pick the sun, go for it. You are on the expressway of success. It's time to focus your energies and show the world just how good you are and how much you have to offer. And it's time of good health, of good wealth. It's a good time to be alive. Are you waiting for a job? Got the job. Congratulations. Exam results. You passed your exams. Learning how to cook. Your souffle will not droop. Hooray for the sun. Such a feeling of satisfaction when you look at this card. It's like the very best day in July. It's wonderful. So you say, Arnie, and I say, yes. What if we pick this card in the reverse position? Well, it could mean you're standing on your head or it could mean your projects were not as successful as you had hoped. And there might be some delays. On a personal level, you think to yourself, let me check my intentions, the purity of my intentions. Was I a little too stubborn? Is that why it didn't work out? Was I a little too arrogant, acting out of ego and vanity? Did I really plan properly? Was I focused on doing the right thing for the right reason? Or was I just like bulldozing through? Am I ignoring the core issue? And just hoping for a superficial outer layer, an illusion to myself and others. The sun, number 19. Beautiful card. Just looking at it, it makes me happy, warm and fuzzy. And I don't think I've mentioned this uh, in all the other dozens of shows that we've done. I do offer tarot readings if anyone's interested as, as part of my skill set. It's a bit of fun and a different way of looking at it. If you go to my website, you will... Uh, undoubtedly find a page that says tarot and uh, it'll tell you all about it so number 19 the sun beautiful and that's it for tarot a go go today and now it is time for do -do 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 -do, the cryptic mystic where we go head to head with someone who cannot defend themselves because they are dead <laughs> who doesn't love a bit of mysticism what is mysticism well, a couple of definitions. One, belief that union with or absorption into the deity or the absolute or the spiritual apprehension of knowledge inaccessible to the intellect may be attained through contemplation and self-surrender. Or two, belief characterized by self-delusion or dreamy confusion of thought, especially when based on the assumption of occult qualities or mysterious agencies. So are we to assume that mysticism is the practice of religious ecstasy? Together with whatever ideologies, ethics, rites, myths, legends and magic may be related to them. Apparently, it may also refer to the attainment of insight in ultimate or hidden truths and to human transformation supported by various practices and experiences. How many more words can we fit into that description? But when we talk about mysticism, all descriptions are inadequate. Spiritual ecstasy, it cannot be described. No human words are adequate to describe the moment when we touch the crossroads of the continuum. That place, that sacred place where the silence is deafening and minds can be lost to the rifts and tears in the void. And that, my darlings, is why I tell you to meditate daily so you won't get lost in the swirls and vortexes of time. Today's cryptic mystic is Teresa of Avila, 1518 to 1582. Saint Teresa was born Teresa de Cepeda y Ahumada. She was born in a village near Avila in Spain in March 1515. We're told her parents were both pious Catholics, and I'm sure they were, but a lot of people forget to mention 
that her grandfather was forced to relinquish his um, his Jewish faith by the Inquisition, <clears throat> as many Jews were at that time. It was expedient for them to do so. Uh, it's either that or die, I suppose. So anyway, Teresa was a pious Catholic, born to pious Catholic parents. Um, and as a child, apparently, she she did show some interest in religion. And she went into prayer for contemplation quite a bit, and she enjoyed giving money to the poor. She loved her mother. Her mother was a lovely woman, very warm-hearted um, and quite laid back. And that was a real counterbalance to her father, who was really strict. Um, but Teresa's mother died when Teresa was young. And Teresa writes later on of how much she missed her. And how she despaired, and in her despair, she turned instinctively to the Virgin Mary for comfort. Now, as some young women do in their teens, they lose some of their piety and their zeal. And she became interested in worldly matters. She had friends. She was warm. She was charming. She was affable. She enjoyed the company of people. Uh, you know, she just liked to have a good time, not saying you know, she was a loose woman or anything, but she just enjoyed society and friendship. And the other part of her was she would sometimes go into this guilt trip about, oh, she was a sinner and she had too much of a good time. And, you know, not to reinforce cultural stereotypes, but, you know, if you're born from a Jewish family and you go into a you adopt Catholicism. Well, you know, there's a tradition of guilt right there for you. Anyway, moving forward, 16 years old, she goes to a convent school to be educated. In those days, believe it or not, convents weren't particularly strict. Um, in fact, I think Teresa commented that her father was more strict than the convent was. And the convents would take just about anybody who could pay to get in them. And this didn't sit well with Teresa because she found it very difficult to meditate in these overcrowded convent where... Um, People were not judged on their spiritual intensity, let's say, but on, or rather on how much money they could give in. So, you know, she wasn't very happy to begin with. She had a really bad bout of malaria. Um, they possibly thought she might not recover, but she did. And when she did recover, she was even more fervent in her attention. She resumed her prayers with renewed vigor. And she started having visions and spiritual experiences because when she was at the height of the malaria, <clears throat> because there's a lot of fever and pain attached with malaria, uh, she started to, to, to do something that all saints apparently have in common. At, at the worst pain of their lives, they started to have these spiritual breakthroughs and these visions. But many people weren't interested in hearing about her visions, um, you know, especially people in the church who said that she was being far too flippant or trying to get attention. So until she was about 40, 41 years old, her spiritual life uh, was sort of a half life. And she had difficulty getting back into the um, the rigor of daily prayer and prayerful contemplation. But then something happened to her and she was renewed. She was really renewed. Um, the other nuns liked her. She had an endearing quality, uh, you know. She was charming. But in close quarters, as with any organization, the, her visions, her ecstasies, all of this, it caused jealousy and suspicion. Uh, and don't forget, this was around the time of the Spanish Inquisition, where anybody who strayed from the traditional orthodox part of, uh, of their religion, um, you know, horrible things could have happened to you. So she pushed through. She really pushed through and she decided that she had to give it all to God. And there could be no half prayer. There could be no frivolity. There could be uh, no indecision. And she was about 43 years old when she decided she wanted to found a new order of nuns committed to the values of poverty and simplicity. And she wanted to move away from her convent in the town of Avila, which initially met with um, a, a great deal of opposition. But she persevered and she started this new order and devoted pretty much the rest of her life traveling around Spain, setting up new convents based on these ancient monastic 
traditions. Um, you know, when you're presenting reforms, reforms, uh, you come under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of criticism. And she met with a lot of criticism, uh, including, you know, the papal nuncio. And apparently he described her as a restless, disobedient gadabout who has gone about teaching as though she were a professor. Well, forgive a woman for having an opinion, sir. So, you know, she had to deal with all of that. But she did not let any of these obstacles dissuade her from her life's task. She devoted herself to the divine and she wrote some very, very beautiful books. She died in October. She was, uh, good Lord, I used to know all this stuff off by heart. Now I have to look at my notes. 1582. And she was 67 years old. And um, one of her fellow sisters wrote this description about her hours before her death. She remained in this position in prayer, full of deep peace and great repose. Occasionally, she gave some outward sign of surprise or amazement, but everything proceeded in great repose. It seemed as if she were hearing a voice which she answered. Her facial expression was so wondrously changed that it looked like a celestial body to us. Thus, immersed in prayer, happy and smiling, she went out of this world into eternal life. And she is considered one of the great Christian mystics. Um, you might want to read The Way of Perfection, that she wrote in 1566, which is uh, her telling the nuns how to reach their goals. Very interesting work. Um, she's best known, though, for the uh, Castillo Interior, the, um, the interior castle. And this is where she describes various stages of her spiritual evolution. Um, fascinating. And I really enjoy this woman. I particularly enjoy the fact that it wasn't easy for her. And she persevered. And she wrote some genuinely beautiful words. And she was a genuinely compassionate woman. Towards the end of her life, she really had it all in balance. One of her most popular poems is God Alone is Enough. Let nothing upset you. Let nothing startle you. All things pass. God does not change. Patience wins all it seeks. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone is enough. And that's a personal favorite of mine, especially in these trying times. I have that laminated and I carry that with me wherever I go. Well, I think we have just enough time for a little pat of poetry. Yes, folks, after a hard day shamaning, I like nothing better than going home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, and writing really bad but occasionally brilliant non-peer-reviewed poetry. Today I have three short little ditties for you, part of my collection, which uh, I keep promising I'm going to publish. I should probably get on with that. So here we go. First one. Lavender's blue, dilly dilly, let's find the snitch. I want it known, dilly dilly, who killed Seth Rich. Won't it be wonderful when all that comes out? Here's another one. A little limerick I wrote. The agenda for politically correct is the erosion of our intellect. It is so obvious, so blatant, yet you are all so complacent, played for fools, yet no desire to object. And here's another little one based on a, a, a traditional Irish uh, ditty. I had a little house upon a little hill. The door was wide open to people of goodwill. But then I checked the mortgage and found it was a scam. I had agreed to bondage, and now I fight the man. A little bit of fun for you there, my darlings. Well, let's take a look at the time, and let's take a look at my glass, which is rapidly diminishing. Oh, my darlings, I think that's it for today. I've almost finished my drink, and that means it's almost the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it because I had a blast. 
Today's real-life martini is called a salty dog special. So you get a low-bore glass and you rim it with kosher salt. You fill it with ice. You add two ounces of Tanqueray London Dry Gin. And you top up the glass with freshly squeezed grapefruit juice. It must be fresh, not the carton stuff. And you sip slowly. And a bit like the show, I hope, it's different. It's bracing. And even though I actually don't like grapefruit juice, I find it very refreshing. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.